Hello there and welcome to Fill Me Up. I'm Steve Walker and this is the show to help fuel your film discussions. Um, been some news this week. Um, so apparently Lion King 2 is happening. Uh, and I don't mean Lion King to Simba's Pride, which is the direct-to-DVD sequel to the 1994 film. I mean, there's a live-action, in quotation marks, sequel to uh, The Lion King that happened, and it's got um, the director of Moonlight, um, the Oscar-winning movie, um, to uh, Barry Jenkins. He's, he's doing it, so that's a thing that's happening. So... We'll see how the next one does. I mean, this one made a billion dollars, but a load of people didn't like it, so let's see. Anyway, uh, Jamie Foxx is also coming back as Electro in Spider-Man 3 somehow. Uh, it's different continuity, different Spider-Man, but still he's coming back. Is it going to be the multiverse? Probably. Uh, is it good? I don't know. Probably not, but Marvel are pretty good, so I'm pretty sure they know what they're doing. Um, uh, also, Borat 2... Uh, has been filmed and shot and it's coming out soon i think on amazon prime um it's definitely a good time to do it uh with all the uh with the election coming up and there's a lot of there's a lot of things to satirize right now especially with trump and uh and the coronavirus and the combination of the two which has just broken this morning um at time of recording which is i mean it's it's not great because it's never it's never great if somebody is ill but um but it's Trump so whatever. Um so yeah, so good on Sasha Baron Cohen for bringing Borat back and uh yeah, probably a good time to do it. Um as I did last week, uh my friends are giving me some words to sneak into the podcast again. Um so there are five in total. I didn't say that last week, but there are five in total. Uh, and see if you can find them. I did put up, uh, I did put out a tweet uh, the other day to say what words I snuck in. So if you wanted to find out, then uh, you can find out at All Out Walker, and I will do the same thing uh, for this one. Um, sweet. So let's move on to the first proper section of the show, um, and that is Alpha Set. Um, it's where I take three films I've never seen before and I watch them and I talk about them and, but I don't spoil them because I am not a spoiler like that. Um, and so, yeah, we're up to tea. Uh, and the first film this week, uh, is Thoroughbreds. Uh, this is two, about two girls, each troubled in their own way, who begin to spend more and more time together, each impacting on the other with eventful results. Uh, it came out in 2017, had a $6 million budget, um, and it only made $3.1 million. So it did lose money, but it had a really small release. Because I remember at the time going, oh, this looks interesting. I must have seen a trailer or I'd heard something about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go and see this. But then it was only out for like a week. And I was like, what's this? I've, I've not, I haven't got time this week, but I wanted to go next week, and it wasn't on. So it's just one of those things that happens for some reason. Um but it's pretty well rated. It's got a 6.7 on IMDb and 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm somewhere in the middle. I give it a 7 out of 10. Although it's a really interesting look at minds and relationships. But it was a bit anticlimactic, if I'm honest. Um, so the the the, the the two lead performances, don't worry. They're, they're not actually, they're not lewd. 
they're not lead performances, but they are lead performances. Um, and they are absolutely brilliant. Uh, Olivia Cook plays Amanda. Olivia Cook, you may know from Ready Player One, probably. Um, and she's sort of a psychopath, um, but one that's sort of trying to have a normal life. Um, but all the emotion comes from the other lead character uh, called Lily, who's played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who you may know from Split. She was in The New Mutants recently. Um, yeah, there's been a few things. I think she was in Emma that came out this year. Um and yeah, and we follow Amanda and Lily, and Lily's kind of got this thing going on where she's struggling to keep up appearances and things. Um, so yeah, um, so they've each got things going on. They're each troubled in their own way. Uh, so, and you op- we open up the film with a tutoring session, but it's not your typical tutoring session that you see in films. It's not your maths. It's not your. It's not your trigonometry. Your calculus. It's it's. Instead, it's more of a literary thing and comprehension and whatever, and it's seemingly casual, and it's almost like the girls are just hanging out. But you quickly see the difference between the two two of them. Lily's put together and polite, whereas Amanda is kind of just quite blunt, not in a vindictive way, but she's just kind of like very straight and matter-of-fact. Um, and these begin to learn more about each other, not necessarily of their own choices, like there's a a point where this isn't really spoiled, but there's a point where Amanda sees her mum's her, her mother's emails vis a vis the tuition fees, um because uh, it turns out that um so Lily is is tu is tutoring Amanda um and this brings out this kind of almost a fascination to other kind of when they find more and more about each other uh, and it's kind of fascinating for the audience as well because you can really see the girls both trying to puzzle each other out but like also rubbing off on each other and you also get to learn more about them and you, and um and you learn about um lily's mum's new boo which they both say boo to you because they do not like him um it's well structured and the tension ramps up as the film goes on the music's really subtle but it's effective and it adds to the build-up, I think. Like the problem, however, comes in the like the final third because you've got this build-up, you've got this, you're feeling a bit amped up, and and you're ready for something to happen. And even though it kind of does happen, it's off-screen. And I mean, don't get me wrong, the cinematography in that screen, in that screen, in that scene, um, is really good. I mean, it's it's really good in the whole film, but at that kind of point, it's really it's it's uh kind of a bit different, and it's and I do like it. But I just felt we needed to see something, like, just for catharsis in a way. Like, like you, you could have had some sort of subversion or some violence on screen, but instead you kind of just left feeling a bit hollow and cheated. I mean, the film's really good regardless. Like, it's definitely worth a watch for the performances and character arcs, like, alone. But, I don't know, maybe the fact that the film's only like an hour and a half, it means that the end got a little rushed. I mean, sometimes this is beneficial. Like, if you if there's something that completely throws throws you off and then there's just like a, a, fate, a cut to black or whatever but there isn't anything like that there's no massive subversion or anything it's just sort of i mean it also makes sense it all plays out kind of fairly i don't know you're just like yeah well yeah yeah that makes sense that's that's yeah that there's nothing like you're not going oh wow that's like it's a really weird reveal or unexpected like there's nothing like that and the fact that you either don't have anything like that or you don't get to see it play out on the screen is a bit disappointing i feel um but yeah um especially considering the rest of the film was really good and really interesting so 
Um, but we'll get into some facts. Um, so it was originally pitched as a play. Uh, so the writing director, Corey Finley, has some theatre experience. And it kind of shows when you're watching the film, like the way everything's shot, like especially towards the end, like this scene that I've been talking about, you you could definitely play out like really well in a play. And like, but I just feel for the big screen is you sometimes just need that little bit extra. Um, here's also Finley's directorial debut. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's not a bad one. Um, he has only done one other film since. So, um, yeah, I'm in fair place with him. He's, he's done a great job and, um, it's just that, I don't know. I think, I think it transitioning from one sort of medium to the other is a bit tricky and you've always got a bit of overlap. So, uh, but yeah, I think he's done pretty well with it. Um, it's also Anton Yelchin's last film uh, before his death in 2016 at the age of 27. He's in the 27 club. Um, he's very good in it. Like he, I mean, he's good in all the stuff I've seen him in. He, even Terminator Salvation, which I I'm going on the record as saying it's not that bad. I I kind of like it. Um, it's not the typical kind of role that you would expect to see from Anton Yelchin. He's he's normally kind of the I don't know. Like, and this is a bit of a sleazy guy and a bit of like a, I don't know, a delinquent, I guess. But he pulls it off well. And I mean, it's a shame that he didn't get to do more. Because like I say, all the stuff that I saw him in was, was he was good. And and yeah, it's just a, it's just a shame. It's just a young age to die, really. So, uh, but yeah, uh, overall, um, I think it's just a, a brilliantly worked film. Uh, it's got some stellar performances and really good characters, but it just lacked a little bit. Uh, in the end, I think. Um, but yeah, film number two of this week uh, is Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. Uh, and this is about a former spy who is given the task of finding a Russian mole in the top echelon of British intelligence. Uh, it came out in 2011, had a $26 million budget, and it made $81 million. So it made a little bit of moolah. Because um, you need to... Sometimes it can be a bit misleading because there'll be, it may say twenty six and it's made forty or whatever, but and that would that would mean on the face of it that would mean it's made money, but actually it hasn't because you need to double the budget for marketing and distribution costs. Um, this film also rated quite well. It's got a seven point zero on IMDb and eighty three percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and once again, I've gone right in the middle with an eight out of ten. Uh, it's a very tense and it's a very cerebral affair. As this is not your typical Bond-style action spy film where they go from Zimbabwe to Zanzibar chasing some sort of villain. This is more of a thinking man's film where they talk like this all the time and everything's very slow and calculated. And, and it's set in the 70s and so you've got old school typewriter style codes and surveillance and things like that um it's got some terrific performances by like a who's who of british actors there's gary oldman is the lead there's colin firth john hurt mark strong benedict cumberbatch tom hardy toby jones stephen graham like there's a load of people in this and everyone really sells their role well and there's like this little bit of suspicion about everyone um it's based on a john le carre novel um other it's, some other of his works have been adapted into The Night Manager with Tom Hilston and Hugh Laurie and The Constant Gardener with Rafe Fiennes. Um, 
And they all have that sort of old school spy vibe with characters put in these tense and stressful situations and they have to act slick and, and just be really clever about it. Um, you, it's an interesting film because you don't actually find out a lot about the players involved and you don't... So, like, when stuff unfolds, there's still this intrigue about them and, like, you don't feel at the end that you've been mugged off or anything, but you also don't feel like, oh, I should have got that. It It, like... Yeah, it just it's sort of the, the way the story pans out. It's it's kind of really well done because it it's all very logical. It's very it's finally, it's kind of fairly straightforward to follow. And there's always these, but there's always these questions, and there's always, uh, and the solutions kind of make these situations that kind of, I don't know. There's always questions, and the situations that manifest kind of from that make sense, and and then things are set up to answer the questions not only for you but for the characters and like i don't know it, 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 there's a lot of kind of like well we'll do this and then something will happen and we'll get some information from that so you there's always kind of this unknown uh or even all the way up to the end really um one thing i did notice is it's quite a bland looking film it's got a lot of grays a lot of browns um but i'd say it works well for this film because i mean spy work it's all about blending in it's all about blending in. But it also means that your focus is on the characters and the plot. Um, it makes some excellent scenes with Tom Hardy, uh, Mark Strong and Colin Firth. Like, they give some really strong performances in some scenes. It's some really good stuff. Um, and the team of Gary Oldman and ben Benedict Cumberbatch is, Cumberbatch? Cumberbatch, uh, is just fantastic throughout. Uh, there is a scene where it was... Oh, uh, we're on to we're on to facts. I've gone all the way to facts already. Blimey! Uh, yeah, we're on to facts. Uh, so there's a scene in this film where it was felt that Colin Firth's character should say something, but nothing was actually written in the script. So the director Thomas Alfredson. So this is all in rehearsals. And so director Thomas Alfredson, uh, he called the author John Le Carre, uh, who paused for apparently paused for 15 seconds and then said, "Grab a pen." Uh, I don't know if that's his voice. I just did that. Grab a pen. Um, apparently, uh, John Le Carre also makes a cameo during a flashback to a Christmas party in the film, uh, which is nice. Um, yeah. So apparently, like, it's just like the fact that they had John Le Carre on 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 speed dial almost just to be able to kind of pitch him with these things that maybe they weren't weren't sure about, and they were like, "Oh, yeah, I feel like I should say something, but I don't know." And then they just ring. Ring up the author, and within fifteen seconds, he's like, "I got it." Uh, it's just, it's just really brilliant. Um, the palette of the film that I mentioned before, with the browns and the greys, it's all down to the director Thomas Alfredson, like I said. Uh, and his, it was all about his first impression of London in the nineteen seventies. He said, "If you see London now and at that time, it's two different cities. Today, it's a white city. Then it was black. It was so dirty." And you could still feel the war all around. Uh, so presumably that's the uh, Second World War, I guess. Um, yeah, because it would have been Cold War times at 70, presumably. Um, so, yeah. Um, which I think is really interesting. And, like, it's it's a thing that I noticed, but it's it's a thing that he... It, it was a, an intentional thing. So it was... And I noticed that, and it was... And I was like, oh, that's... I've noticed a thing that he did on purpose. I like it. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's good. It's a good little like thing, and it 
definitely brings you back to the 70s. And, well, in some ways, it, it sort of brings you back into the 70s. Like, a lot of the production design is really good on this film, and, like, it definitely feels uh, like a different time. And, yeah, I think... I, I mean, not just, like, the in terms of costumes and hairstyles and, and things like that, but uh, just set design. And, like I say, the, the pa- colour palette uh, helps as well. Um, so, yeah. Um, and finally, to prepare for the role, Gary Oldman actually took inspiration from Alec Guinness's performance in the in the role of uh, Smiley. I can't remember. George Smiley, which is the character that he's playing. Because uh, uh, Alec Guinness, who you may know as Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original Star Wars trilogy, um, he... Uh, he played uh, George Smiley in the 1979 adaptation of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Um, and so Gary Oldman took some uh, cues from him and he took uh, some... He, he watched his performance and took some cues from that. But uh, he also visited the other John le Carre and incorporated some of his mannerisms. Uh, Gary Oldman said, The way he touched his shirt, spoke and so on, I took all that and used it. I hope he won't mind, but Smiley is in his DNA, which I thought was really interesting, the fact that he's managed to actually... So uh, the so John the Carrey is almost in this film twice because he's, he's uh, in it as a cameo, and he's in it as George Smiley through Gary Oldman, which is great stuff. Um, overall, it's a solid spy thriller. It's not action-packed, but it's very entertaining still, and it's, very, and it's worth a watch. I liked it a lot. Uh... So let's move on to the final film of this week, and that is Tucker and Dale versus Evil. This is a very different film. This is about two hillbillies who are on vacation, uh, and they are mistaken for serial killers by a group of college kids with some bloody and funny results. Some blood, some bloody results, and some bloody funny results. Am I right? <laughs> anyway, uh, it came out in in twenty ten. Um, it had a five million dollar budget. And it made 5.7 million. So even though it's higher, it's actually lost some money. Um, it's got a 7.5 on IMDb though, and an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. I give it a seven out of ten. This one, it's a funny subversion of this of a typical horror story, which I liked. Uh, the performances are really good. Uh, it starts out following the college kids as you would with the generic horror film, but uh, so it takes a while to focus on the hillbillies. But once you do. They're great. They're just so innocent and likable. Alan Tudyk, who's this character actor, he, I feel you'll, you'd recognise him, but it's kind of hard to say like specific roles that he's been in. He's really good. He just crops up here and there and everywhere. Uh, he was in Firefly, uh, the TV show. Uh, he voices K2SO in Rogue One, the Star Wars film. Uh, he voices Joker and Clayface in the new Harley Quinn series, which is great. Uh, and he was also in 310 to Yuma, which... I watched way, way, way back um, in the very first Alpha set in May. Um, so, yeah. Um, and it also has a guy called Tyler Labine, who uh, plays Dale. Um, I hadn't seen him before, but he's great. Um, uh, yeah, Alan Tudyk plays Tucker, and they're both fantastic, and especially Labine, who he, he does get a bit more screen time, but he, he, he handles it magnificently. Um, there are a number of laugh-out-loud moments, but... I felt, for the most part, that it's kind of, it's just more entertaining and amusing. You're just like, oh, that's just funny. As opposed to, ha, sort of thing. You know what I mean. You're just like, oh, oh, like just a little chuckle to yourself. Um, 
I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, sometimes that's all you're after. I was kind of hoping for a bit more, especially because um, Alan Tudyk's involved, and I love Alan Tudyk, uh, and he, I think he's hilarious. But um, I think the film possibly suffers because the tone's so playful, like, in a way. Like, I feel like it maybe should have lent more heavily towards the horror side. So, like, cause the horror, you, you barely get any horror stuff in it. It's just, like, it's almost like it, they've just taken the horror... It, 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 yeah, it's not really much of a horror film, and so the when the comedy comes, it it it's not surprising or it's not like like I feel like it would have been nice to have that juxtaposition between uh like kind of a darker horror and you like you get drawn into that and then you just have this laugh out loud moment. Like I feel like it would have elevated the comedic moments a bit more if you'd have had that kind of variation. Um. I mean, I feel like they tried to do that a bit at the start, but it didn't really have that impact, and, like, they quickly just settled in and were like, yeah, these are goofballs and whatever. Um, I also think a couple of the gags were overplayed. Like, a lot of the stuff's just, like, misunderstanding how a situation looked. Like, you see it from different perspectives, and you're like, oh, that looks like this, and that looks like that, and, like, it, that's... I mean, that for a long, large portion of it, that's kind of how the plot progresses, and it's... I don't know, it just... I think because there wasn't many laugh, like belly laugh inducing sort of moments. I feel like if everything was like, was belly laugh, like I was belly laughing at everything, then I feel like it would have worked. But I think because it was just like, oh, this is funny. Like it, it just kind of got a bit stale. Um, but I don't know. Uh, the writer director, Eli Craig, he hadn't done any feature length films at this point. So this again is a feature length directorial debut. Uh, and he's only, again, he's only done one film since, so, I mean, I think that could have been part of the reason for the film not quite living up to the potential. He did have this, he did have a writing partner, but I just think that maybe they could have had done with having, like, a more experienced hand to guide them, someone who'd maybe done horror films before, just just so that they could kind of nail that horror stuff that they're trying to parody. Because um, I feel like, in order to be a good parody film, you have to be a good film of that genre. Like, Airplane is a is a great parody film but i feel like it's almost a, just like quite a good uh disaster film in a way as well i don't know but well to be fair airplane's a different kettle of fish because airplane just has so many different things going on so many different jokes and surrealism thing it's not it's chalk and cheese in it i don't know what i'm talking about anyway um there was some nice foreshadowing for some of the deaths and there's some funny kills in it as well but again, I just feel a bit more creativity would have led to some funnier scenes. Like, they do rehash the same thing a couple of times. And I don't know. He's just like, I don't know. I, I feel like they, this was, this was an opportunity to just go like crazy with it. Like, it's almost like they've tried to go sort of realistic, but then it's kind of, there's certain like game breaking elements in it. And you're just like, well, that clearly is not a thing. So. Like, just, I think, I think they should have just kind of gone balls to the wall again. Just a big swing a bit more. Um, also, none of the college kids really had any personality apart from a couple that I'm going to talk about in a sec. Some, obviously, are just fodder there to be killed, which is fine. But others just seem to be there to pad out the numbers. Like, like I say, the, some of the kills were kind of similar. Some of the jokes were kind of similar and things like that. Like, if you're not quite sure, just don't put extra people in there or, like... 
if you're going to put him in there, give him stuff to do, like add some more jokes in there, give him a character to kind of build on the situation, like a different personality, so then you get different perspectives. Just, I don't know, just you could you could like, add to it so much more, I feel like, especially because you've got those characters there. Like you've already written them in, just give him a personality, just make him have some things about him. I don't know. Um, however, there are a couple of standout kids. When I say kids, all of these actors are now older than I am, so... Uh, they're not really kids at all. Um, one being the stereotypical blonde final girl kind of type, and the other one being this being the tough guy named Chad, because of course he's named Chad. Um, Allison, the girl, uh, becomes the focal point of the film, but she's kind of sh- shown to be more than the shallow and kind of two-dimensional character that you're expecting and that you kind of get from those sort of films. She has some fun developments with Dale and and she's got this kind of like a nice wholesome arc in a way which i thought was unexpected in in a film like this uh and then we've got chad and like chad is chad's a brilliant character for a film like this like let's just say he doesn't shy away from the situation uh his arc is is really well done it's really funny uh and he's got this unexpected twist thrown in at the end which i liked a lot um he starts out of this kind of stereotypical jerk jock that you kind of have known from lots of these sort of films and so you obviously instantly dislike him but because of his path i feel he becomes one of the best bits of the film uh so yeah i i'd recommend watching it almost for him because he's he's pretty funny um facts though let's do facts facts and facts and facts machine let's go to the facts machine um so a special feature on the DVD release shows the film from the college kid's perspective, uh, which means that Tucker and Dale actually were like horrific killers, which I think is an interesting thing. Like it's it that it, so I kind of uh, I kind of look forward to seeing that and being like that'd be an interesting watch because then if they it can make a good horror film out of that, then I'd sort of be like we're just put those bits in there like you've clearly done it just put those bits in the actual film and then it worked better anyway it's just me just me my opinion just me and my opinion um in fact number two there's a conversation between tucker and dale towards the end about catching frogs and dale talks about how he used to lick them uh which is kind of interesting because tyler labine who is playing dale actually did lick a frog in a small role he had in the X-Files in 1996. Um, so, a little, little throwback to to his little small role there. Um, there was actually talk of a sequel, uh, Tucker and Dale Go to Yale, which I think is a great title, uh, which is described as Goodwill Hunting meets the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I think is a, which sounds great to me. Um, another idea was a pastiche, of from dusk till dawn um scripts were being written all the way into 2017 but tudic said that it's unlikely to move forward as the script was disappointing i snuck in a little film that wasn't made there just before the big one um overall though it's it's not the scariest horror it's not the funniest comedy but it's it's entertaining it's enjoyable and it's an easy watch so i i recommend it um that that's alpha set i guess um i didn't mention before but uh if you 
uh, if you follow me on Twitter, then you will find out uh, on Monday what kind of what films I'm watching. Um, I did put up a, a tweet this Monday, uh, letting people know. So if you do like to watch along with these sort of things, then you can do. But there is no obligation whatsoever. It's completely up to you. Though I will come round and uh, steal your steal. I was I will I was going to say I'll steal your beds or steal your heart. I'll steal your uh, I don't know. I'll steal something from you. I'll make my mind up when I get there. Um, so it's up to you though. Do it or don't. Whatever. It's the next section, and the next section is the film that wasn't, or a film that wasn't, because it's not the only one that wasn't. There was lots of films that wasn't or weren't. Uh, this week, uh, you'll know it's called the train. But I want to take you back first to 1979. Uh, Ridley Scott directed a film that would change the face of sci-fi cinema forever. Uh, That film was Alien and would not be the milestone it is without the production design of one H.R. Geiger. The Swiss artist's sexualized horror is one of the most iconic creatures ever created in pop culture. Uh, so another opportunity to team the two together seems like a no-brainer, right? Well, in 1988, Ridley Scott contacted H.R. Geiger to do just that. The project was called Dead Reckoning and was written by Jim Ools. I like his name, Jim Ools. Ools. Uh, who will go on to write Fight Club for David Fincher, uh, which came out in 94, I want to say. Um... Described as alien, but on a train, uh, Ull said it was a sci-fi action thriller set in the future in which an altered form of life gets loose on a high-speed runaway underground train. The creature was a humanoid with a genetically altered brain that was intended to be used as the hard drive in an artificial intelligence project. Um, I like the fact that they basically called it alien on a train. Have I ever told? I was going to say, have I ever told you? I probably haven't told you. Um, the uh, way that you can tell a Liam Neeson film. Uh, you just go through a lot of his films that he's done recently, and then you just go, it's basically Taken, but something else. So, like, non-stop, Taken on a train. Unknown, no, non-stop, Taken on a plane. The Commuter, Taken on a train. Uh, unknown, Taken, but he's lost his memory. Uh, and he's in Germany. Uh, what else? What other stuff has he done? Cold Pursuit, Taken, but in snow. Um, I mean, he's a way simplifying these sort of things, but hey, he just he just likes doing Taken, but on a different thing. Anyway, uh, so uh, Dead Reckoning, as it was called back then, sounded like the love child of arguably Ridley Scott's two most recognisable films, Alien and Blade Runner. Uh, the independent studio Carol Co. decided that Scott would indeed be the perfect choice to direct. I don't know how they got that decision, how they came to that decision at all. Who would have thought? Anyway, uh, Carrico at the time had some successes with the Rambo films, among others, but they wouldn't hit the big time in sci-fi until the 90s when they produced the Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicles, Total Recall, and Terminator 2, A Judgment Day. Don't know whether you've heard of those, those, those little films. Um... 
With Ridley Scott on board, Geiger jumped to the chance to join the hype train for the project, now known as The Train. He joined the hype train for The Train. Uh, he said, for me, there is nothing greater than this. I was enthusiastic about it and immediately accepted, because a remarkable movie always originates from a director like Ridley Scott. Um, unless you're talking about the one where Christian Bale was Moses. I can't remember what it was called. Exodus? Something like that. Uh, clearly, Geiger thinks a lot of Scott, and it's said that despite working in the film industry for do for decades on dozens of different projects, some that got made, some that didn't get made, uh, Alien remains the only product that Geiger is proud of, suggesting that it, this pairing was like lightning in a bottle, never to be repeated again. Um, H.R. Geiger absolutely threw himself into the project. He let his erotic and eccentric designs flow freely. Uh, this involved not only the creation of the humanoid train terror, but also the train itself. Uh, this was something that particularly interested him, and he came up with futuristic ideas of train pods, similar to the hypersleep pods that you see in Alien, uh, being moved around by by a crane game-like mechanism. You know, when you, when you go forward and you're right, and then you then you go down and you're directly above it and then it and then and then the teflon coated uh crane just slips off the one that's covered in grease you know because they're all covered in grease or something because they can't because there's no way that you can get it bang on that many times and it doesn't come up anyway uh there was in fact there was one crane game that i played before at some like holiday camp in scotland i think and they didn't coat it in grease or anything, and we won so many stuff, so much stuff. It was amazing. Uh, we went back time and time again, because pretty much every time, you were like, yeah, I've got that bob on, boom. Oh, I've got a nice big... I think it had... There was, like, dragons, and so they had, like, a nice big head and, like, a little neck, so it had, like... So it caught on really well and hooked in, so I think that could have been why. Uh, we had a few dragons from that holiday. Uh, anyway, let's get back to it. Uh... So yeah, so we had this idea for these train pods that were moved around with like a train, crane game thing. Crane game, or like train game, am I right? <laughs> anyway, uh, other options included passengers in cutlery style drawers uh, with trucks loading the cabins on and off the train. Uh, I guess like forklift trucks. Um, and the train, another one was the train being a mechanoid creature with a skull and appendages. I say a skull, it looks a bit like a skull, but it isn't a skull. And it looks like appendages, but it's not appendages. It's not real, but it's maybe sort of real? I don't know. Anyway, Geiger worked feverishly and... Don't, hang on, hang on, hang on, let me start this sentence again. The while Geiger worked feverishly and charged forward with his designs, Scott was quietly backing away from the project. He apparently had some creative differences with Caraco producer Joel Silver, who, uh, the, that producer, uh, Joel Silver, would work on the Die Hard Predator, Lethal Weapon, and Matrix franchises. So, not a bad producer, I guess. Um, uh, I've also written down here, uh, Ridley Scott uh, probably thought Joel Silver, more like Noel Silver, because he said no. <laughs> I don't know why I put that in it. Anyway, um... And so, because of these differences, like, Edward VIII abdicated his throne in the 1930s? I don't know, whatever. 
Uh, Ridley Scott left the director's chair and Geiger's mad machinations with it, turning his attention, uh, turning his attention to debuting Brad Pitt's abs in Thelma and Louise. Did you see those abs? Have you seen them? They went on to be in Fight Club that was written by Jim Ools. Anyway, he's got good abs, hasn't he? Anyway, um, Silver, however, stayed on board the hype train for the train, uh, trying to get someone in Hollywood to bite. He hired numerous writers to rework the script. He changed the project to be called Isobar, and he finally hooked some talent by the names of Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin around 1990. Uh, these two weren't that famous at the time, but they would go on to make some of the most famous disaster films ever, including Independence Day, which is sort of a disaster, I guess. Until a computer virus saves the day, I think. I can't remember. Something to do with Windows. It was a Windows operating system on an alien ship or something. That's all I remember from that film. And Will Smith going, Welcome to Earth. Uh, they also did The Day After Tomorrow in 2012. Um, this version was rumoured to star Carol Coe's stalwart Sylvester Stallone, who, has been, who had obviously been in the Rambo of films produced by Carol Coe. Uh, and also Kim Basinger, who was in uh, L.A. Confidential that I covered a number of weeks ago. Um, and the, that screenplay was uh, apparently... Uh, it apparently is straight a bit from the original premise. Jim Ools. Jim Ools, the guy that would write Fight Club. You know, Jim Ools. Uh, he would... He said that uh, the creature was changed to be an evolutionary leap. A super adaptive humanoid that was caught thriving outside in the environment that's hostile to humans. It is put onto the train to be transported to a special lab. It breaks free, then it must adapt faster and more dramatically to stay alive inside the train. It requires massive doses of adrenaline to do this, so it kills people to get it. Um, not confident that the Devlin-Emmerich team-up could pull it off, Joel Silver got diehard writer Stephen D'Souza, Stephen spelt wrongly, that is, uh, to have a crack at it, though nothing stuck despite the production studio setting aside a $90 million budget to make it, which is quite a lot at that time. Uh, later versions involved further deviation, with the creature swapped out for a highly mobile plant hybrid, an aggressive organism capable of hunting down water in arid conditions. What, what a sort of lunatic wrote that. Anyway... Though it's probably for the best that that didn't happen, judging from M. Night Shyamalan's 2008 disaster piece, The Happening. Have you seen that film? It, it's the it's the trees. The trees have done it. The Nature is fighting back. It's the trees. Anyway. Eventually, though Carol Coe... Eventually, though, Carol Coe saw their own judgment day with the release of Cutthroat Island in 1995. Uh, supposed to be a comeback for the declining company, it became the biggest box office bomb in film history, losing $147 million off a $98 million budget. And this caused Carol Co. to file for bankruptcy in the same year. Uh, this essentially killed off the train, or Isobar, or whatever it was called at that point, along with any other projects that were in development. But, fear not... H.R. Geiger's obsession with tremendous and terrifying trains paid off. He managed to sneak his skull hand mechanoid train thing with appendages and skull that's not a skull. Uh, he snuck that into a dream sequence in the 1995 film Species, 
Um, it's literally about 30 seconds long, that bit. I've watched it, and it's it's a spooky-looking train. It's a spooky train that looks like a skull and some hands and things. Um, and he also made, made one, like an actual physical one, that travels through his kitchen and around his garden, which apparently annoys his neighbours a lot, which is fun. Um, so if you want to check out one of his crazy creations, then you can find that clip online, the species clip online. Which, and you may be able to find a clip of his his kitchen one as well, I don't know, to actually look for that. Um, yeah. We're now on to the final section of the show, and that is a quick fic. As this is where I take one of 20 film franchises, and I take one of 20 film characters, and I smush them together, and try and create a glorious piece of fiction um, out of it. Um, so the first off, we have to find out whether I'm going to try and make a prequel, sequel, spin-off, or a reboot of uh, a franchise, and let's find out. We're going to make a spin-off. We're going to make a spin-off of what franchise? The X-Men. With wait, with Forrest Gump. So we're making a spin-off of X Men with Forrest Gump. So we made us. I I normally give examples of what we've done before. We've done a X Men. I think we've done an X Men spin-off with John McClane before. Um, and we've also done my favourite Buzz Lightyear and Indiana Jones. We've done a Predator on Star Trek as well. Um, oh yeah, Forrest Gump in X Men. Well, I mean, Forrest Gump is practically a mutant. I mean, he runs incredibly quickly. His ping-pong skills are amazing. He somehow managed to make that shrimp thing work. I don't know how. Shrimp company. Forrest Gump is just an absolute legend and almost a mutant in his own right. wouldn't surprise me if he was a mutant. But I would enjoy seeing a film that is basically Forrest Gump. That would It's basically like... Professor X or whoever, like, finding out, like, what are you, Forrest Gump? Like, what powers have you got? I'd love to see that. And, like, them just going out into the field and testing his powers and then he just stumbles across something and then just just, just adventures of him and with some X-Men characters in there. It's almost a Forrest Gump film. It's almost just... I basically want Forrest Gump, but in the X-Men, X-Men universe, I would just love to see that. Um, him bumping into all sorts of big X-Men characters and just like fumbling his way through things and getting getting by and just being like, oh, he's got to run, he's got to do some running and then he just does some, some running for ages. It's, it's it's so, it's such a brilliant film. It's so weird for his company. It's such a brilliant film. He, he just goes running for ages and he's just like, yeah, I'm done now. I think it's brilliant. Um, something that would be fun just to have, is I think it'd be fun to have a character like that in the X-Men universe. Just because I think everyone would just be like, what is going on with this guy? Who is he? But, like, I think if they do some tests with him and he's just like, what's going on? And, like, I don't know. I think it would be quite fun. And I think I think you could do you could do the follow the adventures of Forrest Gump and he goes, maybe he gets caught by the Brotherhood at first and they're, like, trying to test him out and stuff. And, and he's just, like, going along with it because they're, like, being nice and stuff and they're, like, pretending they're the good guys. And he's just like, oh, you're some... You all seem nice and everything's going well and and stuff. And I'll, I'll play some ping pong with you or whatever. With I'll play ping pong with multiple versions of multiple man or whatever. And then uh, maybe he's like, look, cause but then he's a bit like Domino. 
in that case. So maybe they have a maybe he uh, has a meeting with Domino, which will be quite fun, and it's like a look off thing. That will be interesting. Um, and yeah, and then he gets to the mutants, he gets to the X Men or whatever. Um, I feel like that would be interesting. Maybe he's just in the back of all the X Men films that have gone on, and he's just like sort of bumbling his way through and like helping things along or whatever, which would be quite fun. Um, but yeah, I think that would be. I mean, I've not really given a plot of what it will be, but I would just love to see Forrest Gump bumbling about in the X Men universe. I think it'd be quality. Uh, but anyway, if you uh, have you've got any particular ideas that you would like to share with me about putting Forrest Gump in the X Men universe, please let me know. Um, um, at on Twitter at all at Walker or by email at fillmeuppod at outlook dot com. Uh, they are the same places that you can contact me for if you'd like to talk about anything that we've talked about today, any of the films that we've seen, and if you would like to. Uh, follow me on twitter then you will be able to see what films i'm covering next week for alpha set you i know my alphabet um if you could also leave a review or rating on your platform of choice that would be absolutely smashing and if you could tell a friend that would also be some great things uh yeah as always thank you so much for listening and i will see you metaphorically next time bye